0: Terribly happy guy. Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie. Then he thought that he just couldn't die. So, Ned, he laughed. So, all Hello and welcome to episode 4-335 of the Run Run Live podcast. And bear with me, we're going to get to that great show, including a piece on the re-emergence of effort-based training in the popular zeitgeist and a really good interview with Neely Spence Gracie, who's making her professional marathon debut at Boston this year, and... I'm capping it off with a super thoughtful post on mistakes not to make in life that is just in time for graduation season. But before that, this week I've got another milestone announcement for you. So I've been toying with this idea for years, literally, and I finally got the breathing room to focus on it a little bit and put it into action. And when I looked at the value of this podcast to you over the last eight years and 300 plus episodes, it's in the content, meaning the words and the interviews and the audio I create from them. And that's my value add in the process. The revelation I had is that even though I'm perfectly capable of it, there's no unique or differentiating value to me twiddling with my website or editing the audio or the countless other administrative tasks that something like this does take. So I asked myself, hey, myself, how can I do less of that stuff and more of the good stuff? And the answer was to automate the rote stuff. I had some downtime at the beginning of the year and pulled together a great team of virtual assistants that I'm working with now to do some of the time consuming production work for me. So we're about 3 episodes in and it's working fairly well. So that's that's one that was phase 1. The next phase of this project to automate is now ready to get launched. I have my re- website redone. I'm still working on it, but I had it redone to support a membership option. And I wanted to give people who had the ability and who wanted to a chance to help me cover The costs of all this stuff without having to resort to cheesy commercials or half hearted sponsorships. So, I also didn't want to take anything away or put any existing stuff behind a paywall. So, bottom line, there's a membership option to get cool stuff and support the content, but we're not charging for or taking away any of the existing content or the archival content. So, here's the pitch. Remember, Run Run Live is and always has been free and listener supported. To keep it that way, we are now offering members-only content. By signing up for a membership, you will get access to exclusive members-only audio, like race reports, essays, and other bits just for you. For instance, this week I'm putting up my Stu's 30K race report, and I'll put a clip of that here. Also, exclusive access to individual audio segments from all the shows. That means separate MP3 files for the intros, the outros, the section one running tips, the section two life hacks, and featured interviews, all available as standalone MP3s you can download and listen to at any time. And we will consider other benefits as they are requested by you, because when you're a member, it's all about you. So become a member. So on top of that, consider how much it costs. $4.99 a month. Why? Because that's roughly the price of a couple of espresso love goo gels a month. And unlike goo, we won't give you a sugar overdose or rot your teeth. So not only will you be part of the Run Run Live community and be getting cool extras, but you'll also be healthier and happier. But the real value is that you will be helping this community continue to provide the content you love. And as a member, you can directly influence the stories we tell, the research we do, and the people we interview. We're all in this together. So if you like what we're doing here at Run Run Live, please consider becoming a member. Membership is cheap for a monthly donation that breaks down to roughly around the price of one twenty-fifth of a pair of running shoes each month. You can keep... Run Run Live free and independent. So go to my website and click on the subscribe button. I'm glad to say my training is still going well. I had another big build week that capped off with a three-hour long run. I'm in a good place mentally and physically because instead of ruining the run, I was quite looking forward to it. I queued up my favorite podcast and ran four loops of my home five-mile loop. Another good sign was when I got to the last loop and I'd realized that I'd be about 10 minutes short, so I decided to run up to the top of the telephone tower hill. The driveway was on the course, so yeah, 18 miles or so into the run, I decided to throw in another big hill to make up some time. Then when I got to the end of the run, near my house, I had the three hours, but was about a third of a mile short of 20, so... I just kept going for another three minutes to get the 20. I wasn't sore or chafed or damaged at all afterwards. All very good signs. So this weekend, I'm racing one of my favorites, the Eastern States 20-miler. Three states in 20 miles. Coach has gone easy on me so I can have fresher legs going into it and treat it as a pacing exercise. I'm confident I can negative split it and beat my target marathon goal pace. It's a bit of a flatter course, but there's always some wind coming off the ocean. It'll be a good test, and I'm looking forward to it. And then I taper into Boston. I got my bib number and corral placement, and I am all the way in the back. And that's going to be a challenge. I've got somewhere around 4,000 charity runners to get around to get my BQ. And that's probably worth four to five minutes of race time before I can break free. So I'm so far back this year that I'm considering just waiting before I cross the start mat and giving everyone a 10 to 20 minute head start. But whatever happens, it will be an adventure. I've always said that training well does not guarantee your race time. Training well only gives you the opportunity. Doing the work is not a guarantee of success. Doing the work is how you buy the ticket to get to the starting line with the potential to have a good or even a great day. There was a baseball movie in the 90s called Major League. Maybe you remember that. The storyline was a team of reprobates, misfits, and has-beens. They come together to beat everyone's expectations and win. And one of the characters was the has-been pitcher, Eddie Harris, played by actor Chelsea Ross. Now I think about Eddie Harris when I'm racing now. He had lost his power and his speed but he managed to strike people out with all the tricks and veteran guile that he had learned over the years. And that's where I am now. I don't have the power or the speed. I can't recover as fast. I can't afford to skip any of the ancillary activities like strength training and stretching. I can't skip workouts and expect to just show up and race. But I know my machine. I know how to race. I've got the confidence and poise to coax good performances, and I'm okay with that. On with the show it is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength why you should try effort-based training what does that even mean it seems as though effort-based training is currently making a resurgence in the running zeitgeist This is actually a great thing, because unlike some of the other recent popular running trends, effort-based training won't hurt you, even if you do it all wrong. You may get less benefit from it, but it won't hurt you. So it is, with the fickle trends in endurance sports, that every once in a while, a valid training technique overlaps with the thought patterns of the social hive mind. What is effort-based training? Effort-based training is also known as heart rate training because heart rate is a great measurement of effort level. You don't necessarily have to use heart rate to measure your effort level, but most people do. I do. The basic tenet of effort-based training is that if you train at a specific lower effort level, you will better develop your aerobic capacity, basically your ability to do more stuff longer and harder. This is typically a great thing if you're training for an athletic event, How do you figure out what your effort levels are, or your heart rate zones? In order to find out your effort level, you need to measure your heart rate and calculate your heart rate zones. Most coaches will measure five zones, with one being sort of walking level effort, and five being total sprint out of breath level. The problem you're going to find is that most of the online heart rate calculators are just plain wrong. Or at least they are for me. For example, the most popular method says you take 220 beats per minute minus your age and you'll get your maximum heart rate. Now, for me, this would yield a maximum heart rate of 167, don't do the math, which is about 20 beats per minute too low of my actual max heart rate. You can't be off by 20 beats per minute and expect your training to be effective. These methods are too general to be useful for training. One calculator that I found that comes up with a decent close answer for me is from digifit.com, and I've put the link in the show notes, but it may not work for you. The challenge is that everyone is different. Your heart rate is different than mine. Your health is different. Your age is different. Your fitness level is different. The best advice I can give you is to get as close as you can and then check with an effort-based coach to fine-tune. My coach at PRS Fit, Jeff, he does a great job with this. Two basic bits of information you'll need to get your zones are your resting heart rate and your max heart rate. From these, you can figure out your effort-based training zones, and you can measure these directly. For resting heart rate, Just take your pulse in the morning before you have your coffee for a few days in a row. Simple. You got your resting heart rate. To get a good max heart rate, well, you need to go out for a max heart rate workout or test. Warm up, then run as hard as you can for four to six minutes. I mean as hard as you can. Really push it. Max means max. And then right then, check your heart rate. That's your max heart rate. With your resting pulse and your max heart rate, you should be able to get close on your heart rate zones, and now you're ready to measure your effort level in your training. Instead of distance and time or pace, you only care about effort level. This is why effort-based training is a revelation and a challenge for runners. It doesn't care how fast or how far you run. It only cares about how long you stay at what effort level. Instead of what you may be used to, which would be something like run six miles in 56 minutes, right? Instead of that, an effort-based workout would look more like run 90 minutes in zone two. An effort-based training program will have you doing the majority of your workouts at a low effort level, heart rate zone two. For a period of time, you're going to do this to build your aerobic capacity. It's counterintuitive that you can run slower and get faster, but that really isn't quite true. You can run slower for a while to build the capacity and then get faster when your event approaches. The big shock, the big surprise for most runners is that when you first start effort-based training, it's super hard to stay in the assigned zone. It feels like you're running too slowly. You may even have to rest or walk to let your heart rate settle. It's hard at first to stay in zone 2, especially when you've been looking at your pace. My advice, and what I do when I'm effort-based training, is to take everything except time and heart rate zone off my watch display. When I'm heart rate training, I don't even want to see my pace or my distance. It's counterproductive. This is a big psychological challenge when you first start using effort-based training. Another thing you may notice if you are older or have been particularly abusive to your body is that your heart rate may take a few minutes to warm up. I'm in excellent aerobic shape, but due to my age, it still takes 15 to 20 minutes for my heart rate to come down into zone two when I start a workout so don't be discouraged by that give it time like any other training discipline it takes time to get used to it it's a new practice for your body and the whole point is to give your body time to adapt and those adaptations happen at the cellular level as you continue to spend time in the aerobic training zone so don't get discouraged give it time These effort-based runs will typically be longer in duration than what you're used to. The point is to find that zone 2 effort and stay in it for an extended period of training. At some point, typically a few weeks into the training, you will find that effort zone and it will become easy. Then at some other point, maybe a month or more into the training program, you'll realize you've returned to your previous training paces but are now doing them at a much lower effort level. That's the pot of gold under the rainbow of effort-based training. Run slower to get faster? Well, yes and no. When you are training for an event, you typically have periods of training. Effort-based aerobic training is where you start building your race fitness. It doesn't make you faster per se, but it does develop your physical capacity to race and train. With this greater physical capacity to race and train, you can transition to high quality race-specific training as you get close to your event. In the last 8 to 12 weeks before the event, you can build on top of that big base of aerobic conditioning. This is where you load in the tempo runs, the speed work, the hill repeats. This race-specific work will make you faster for your race. I still believe that if you want to run fast, you have to train running fast. The initial phase of aerobic, effort-based, heart rate training makes these race-specific workouts all the more effective because you have that deep fitness to draw from. Should you switch to effort-based training? Well, depending on what your goals are, I would absolutely take a training cycle of two to three months and learn how to train using effort level. It absolutely works to build base fitness. It absolutely is a positive part of a structured training plan. You have to do the work to find out what your heart rate zones are and fine tune them to your specific physiology. You have to be willing to stick with it long enough for the positive adaptation to take place. It's not a magic bullet, but it is a valid part of your endurance training toolbox. And now for today's featured interview. So, Neely, how are you? I'm well. So, when you give us the 200 words on who you are and what you do,
1: (laughs) I'm Neely Spence Gracie. I am a professional runner for Adidas. I live in Boulder, Colorado. And I'm getting ready to do my first marathon.
0: Your first? I mean, you've run longer than 26 miles before, probably, right? Nope.
1: My longest is 18 and a quarter so far.
0: That's crazy. That's crazy. Hopefully
1: on Tuesday that will change. I'm going to do a long run, so... Going to shoot for nineteen.
0: So my coach, uh, he's going to let me race a thirty k this weekend. Okay. So, so I'm going to do a. Telling
1: me um, that they were doing a thirty k, and I've never even heard of that as a race distance. So that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. So out here in New England, <laughs> we have a bunch of these what I would call middle distance runs, like sixteen milers and eighteen milers, yeah. leading up to the Boston Marathon and twenty milers. That's so, so smart. Yeah, so back in the old days, people, everybody was training for Boston, so they just set up these races on the calendar yep. as where your long runs would be, right?
1: That's brilliant.
0: So you get to run with people, you get water stops, and, right, yeah, and it's practice all cool. it all. It's- Practice, yeah. The only problem is you got to not race, really. Right. You got to be able Control to do negative splits. Yeah. I'm pretty happy. My coach let me do that.
1: that that's so anyhow, really cool. Good luck. Yeah.
0: So anyhow, this is kind of a funny story. I was at the expo for the Rock and Roll Marathon in Phoenix. Yeah. I was at the Brooks booth, mm-hmm. not the Adidas booth, but the uh, Brooks booth. And uh, your friend Shayna, she goes, "Oh, you're Chris from the Run Run Live podcast. You should talk to Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's two weird things. Somebody knew who I was, and, uh, and yeah, so so we get introduced. That was cool.
1: Yeah, it's awesome. Running community, right? Tight-knit. yeah
0: so I sent you sent me your running resume. It's like three pages long. You've been competing at a high level essentially your entire life. When did you get started?
1: Well, I officially committed to my own racing goals in eighth grade, so it's been yeah 13. almost thirteen years now.
0: and so you've been racing at a high level for
1: half my life,
0: half your life yeah. That's amazing. And you're sponsored by Adidas or Adidas yes. as we say here in the United States. Exactly. And your big win over the last couple uh, years is the half marathon in Philly, right? I mean, personal win.
1: Um. Yes. So personally, that's probably my most significant race to this point, breaking that 70-minute barrier for the half marathon, becoming one of only 11 women in the United States to ever do it.
0: And you were spinning up for the Olympic trials, but you decided to skip those. And come run my hometown race.
1: It was heartbreaking at first to miss the Olympic trials. This is my second time missing the Olympic trials. In 2012, I was supposed to run the 5K and ended up breaking my foot that spring and not being able to compete. And then this past fall in Philly, I actually twisted my foot during the race and had to take a couple weeks off afterwards and just felt like I was rushing trying to prepare for a marathon, which I have never done before. So I opted to play smart, give myself a little bit more time to prepare to run 26.2 miles and no better place to test that out than Boston, the world's greatest marathon.
0: Indeed. I'm getting chills just talking about it. <laughs> so this could go well for you. I mean, we love our marathoning out here. So it's uh, you'll probably be on the news and I'll be able to say, see her? I talked to her.
1: <laughs> cool. Sounds good. All right.
0: So that's crazy. You've been racing your whole life. Yes. That's amazing. So what are the if you look back over this whole life of racing, what are the couple of things that you're most proud of?
1: I would say I remember the very first moment I broke six minutes in the mile. I think I was eleven and I was running cross country race with my dad and he helped pace me and I ran five fifty seven. And it was amazing. I was completely shocked. Never thought that breaking six minutes in the mile was even like a possibility. And when I finally did that, I look back and that moment was still stands out as something that's so significant. And now I'm planning to run 26 miles faster than that. Sort of need to see that progression. Another really key race was when... I finally qualified for the Foot Locker National Championships in high school. That was the reason I pretty much started competing at a high level in eighth grade was because I wanted to qualify and run at the Foot Locker National Championships. And so I trained for three years and my junior year of high school, I finally won the Northeast region and qualified as one of the top 40 best high school runners in the country, and I got to go to San Diego and race. So that was a pretty big moment for me. Breaking 16 in the 5K, my junior year of college, was probably the race that made me realize that being a professional runner was a realistic goal for me and really opened my eyes to what my life could be like if I decided to pursue distance running as my profession after school. And then as a professional, I would say, so the 2013 uh, World Championships in Poland, I finished 13th and was... um the top American, first non-African and just being on such a big stage as the world championships and representing my country and just competing with the world's best. That was a really special moment and. I learned so much during that race about how running my own race, working with my strengths and weaknesses, figuring out how to maximize myself on the course is the most important thing during the race because that's how I came away successful. I've taken a lot from all those experiences and hope to apply as much as I can to what's to come.
0: So it sounds like you're still getting over your cold. You are sick last week, huh?
1: Yes. If it's not one yeah. thing, it's another, right?
0: Do you train when you're sick like that
1: it all depends I go off heart rate I yeah, take yeah. my resting heart rate every morning and I have an app on my phone called my isolate and it has a little attachment that goes on my finger that's almost like a pulse ox it connects to this app takes my resting heart rate and my heart rate variability I get a score basically letting me know how stressed my central nervous system is yeah, and yeah. if my resting heartbeat is 10 feet or more Higher than normal, I won't run. It wasn't too high last week, so I just took a couple days easy and just got in my run but didn't do a whole lot else. Didn't try to get in a bunch of quality or anything. I feel like I've mostly recovered, feeling like I'm I'm catching up on sleep and all that stuff. I'm not feeling quite as low energy, but the sinuses still aren't 100%.
0: (laughs) That's a great tip, though, that resting heart rate in the morning. If you keep your eye on that, a lot of times I'll find out I'm sick before I feel sick.
1: Yes. You know what I'm saying,
0: so you'll see your heart rate be high, and you go, what the heck? No, it's and, a great and,
1: tool. The heart rate doesn't yeah. lie. That's for sure.
0: What's it like to live your entire life as essentially a professional runner?
1: I don't really know any different. My background story is that I was born while my dad was running the Boston Marathon as a professional on Patriots athlete. Day. Yes.
0: On Patriots Day. I was born on Patriots Day. You can't write this stuff.
1: You can't make it up. (laughs) Nope. So I guess you could say that it was meant to be that I would run Boston. Destiny. Destiny. Exactly. But I was born into the culture of distance running. And from the day one, I have just been a part of the crazy runner lifestyle. I've learned a lot from my dad, from my mom, and from all their friends and the people who we were around. Growing up, we went every summer to Boulder, (laughs) Colorado. My dad would do his altitude training out here. And to me, doesn't every kid go to Boulder for the summer for altitude training? It was just part of my everyday life. And I've just continued on. So I think in hindsight now I can look back and recognize how very fortunate I am that I grew up knowing that professional running was a career and is an option where I feel like many people don't really recognize that whenever they ask what I do now. And I say, oh, I run. And they're like, oh, okay, so what do you do? I run. Right,
0: what else I'm do a you professional do? professional runner. <laughs> and they're like, you can do
1: that. And I'm like, well, sort of. <laughs>
0: Kind of, kind of. But you had pretty high academic levels too. So it's yeah. not the football players taking basket weaving classes.
1: <laughs> um, I, uh, you kept
0: your academics high.
1: I did. I graduated from Shippensburg University and I have a human communication degree and a coaching minor. So I actually have a private coaching business with about 25 athletes that I coach all across the country.
0: Yeah, which is different than the old days, right? I can remember when you know there was no such thing as professional runners because you couldn't do that and be in the Olympics or compete in a exactly. USATF event.
1: Yeah, the times have changed for sure.
0: Yep. There's so still a lot of changing
1: right. that needs to happen though.
0: <laughs> but it's not like you're living high on the hog and making millions of dollars, right? You're That's doing right. this. It's still a passion. <laughs> is it still fun for you?
1: Absolutely. Running is way, way, way too hard. If it's not fun. So I make sure that that the first and foremost, that nine days out of 10, I wake up excited to get out the door. Every now and again, you have those days and it's hard to get motivated and that's normal and that's understandable, but I want to make sure that 90% of what I'm doing is what I enjoy and what I
0: want. So given that, you know, you've spent your whole life running, I mean, do you ever look ahead and think, what the hell am I going to do when I'm 40?
1: (laughs) Run. How how does this end? How does this (laughs) end? Honestly, I think running is not just a sport. It's part of my lifestyle. It's part of who I am. And so... I certainly hope that the rest of my life, running can be a part of that in some way or another. At this point, look forward to competing for many years to come. I don't necessarily know what will happen in the future, but I know that running is going to be involved.
0: I was talking with the great Kimmy Jones oh, yeah. you know, a couple of weeks ago. And what's special about her, she had a super hard life. She oh, was a gosh. great runner. Yeah. And But when she got to a point in her 30s where... She just felt like walking away. She just walked away and didn't bother her at all. Went all with her life. So she's really well balanced in that. Yeah. Somebody you could talk to.
1: No, and she lives um, in Fort Collins, just not far from me. Sure. So yeah. we've met up for lunch a couple times, and I've read her book and.
0: Yep, <laughs> and Steve Jones is uh, lives out with you guys too, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, he's out painting
0: to... houses. Mm-hmm. You guys have this whole little uh, marathon clique going out there. Oh,
1: I know. It's the who's yeah. who of distance running in Boulder, Colorado.
0: What kind of volume are you training at now for this? For a half marathon or a marathon, even in college, a lot of times they'll spin the runners up into 100-mile weeks when they're peaking. What's your volume and your quality look like for this marathon try?
1: To backtrack, I would say in high school, I started off with maybe 30 miles a week, graduated high school at maybe 50 miles a week, college, I was 60 to 70. So it wasn't until I actually went to the Hansons where I started to explore some of this higher volume, more mileage stuff. And even then, my longest run with them was 17. And my highest mileage week was around 90.
0: They do a lot of back to back hard efforts, though.
1: Yes, and no, they do. It's hard and long the workouts, but they're on a nine day schedule. And that's something that I've continued because I think having two easy days between every hard effort it really helps me recover and stay healthy. That's I'd say the biggest change for me from high school to college to professional running is that workout days are much longer and much harder. So then recovery days have to be much easier. And so in college, I would run every run at seven minute pace or faster. And nowadays. If I average 720, 730 for an easy run, that's great. But I'm minutes faster than I was at that point for races. It's very interesting how I've had to sort of shift with adding on the volume. I've hit 100 twice, and that was super exciting. But for the most part, I do singles. I don't do a ton of double runs. So like last week, even with the half marathon, I did I hit 92 miles and that was mostly in singles. So I think that's going to be pretty much my sweet spot is somewhere between like 85 and 95 at the moment. Sometimes yeah. I'll touch yeah. over hundred, but yeah, we, we didn't want to change too much with marathon training. We didn't want to do
0: anything too risky. It's all athlete specific. You can't, exactly. you can't take a page out of somebody else's and book. And
1: I think as we see what my strengths and weaknesses are in the marathon, once I race it, then we can start to make adjustments based off of who I am and what I need specifically. But for this go around, we just want to show up. We want to be healthy and we want to be in shape, ready to handle a conservative goal and have a positive outcome.
0: So not 215?
1: <laughs> not 215. <laughs> not no. this year.
0: Not this year. 230? <clears throat>
1: 230 is the goal. Anything under 235 is ideal, but I personally would like to run right around 230.
0: So uh, what kind of dog you got there chewing on the squeaky toy? Oh, God,
1: I know. I keep confiscating them all from her. She's a Vishla. Her name is Strider, and she's our little running buddy.
0: Does she run with you? Yes. She did my
1: cool down with me yesterday after my workout, and she's gotten done up to seven miles. Yeah, but she's only ten months, so we have to be cautious with her volume at the moment.
0: Yeah, my poor old guy is coming down the other side, so he still goes. up. Uh, we went out in the uh, actually ran in the woods at dark last night
1: mm-hmm.
0: for like an hour and a half, a re- super easy recovery run. So he's limping around today.
1: Oh man, well I'm <laughs> so sorry I, about the squeaking. Last time uh, in the podcast, that's okay. I put,
0: I'm a dog merch, guy. That's okay. And then
1: cried the whole time. And so in the background, you just hear her like. <laughs> and I think the squeaky toy is better than the whimpering because at least you guys don't think I'm abusing her or something.
0: <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I was reading one of your one of your race reports, and I, it really struck me. Because you were talking about dropping into the flow state. And I think this is something that happens with elite or higher level training distance runners, a lot more than sort of your average Joe distance runners, right? Mm-hmm. I mean we used to always talk about the runners high and all this stuff. Yeah, but if you're very well trained and you're racing, there's this point in the race where you sort of transcend your body and you sort of drop into this flow state. So talk about what that is like for you.
1: No, totally. I first learned about this on a cognitive level during my sports psychology class in college. It absolutely fascinated me because I knew exactly what she was explaining, my professor.
0: Exactly. You're reading it, you're going, Yeah, I'm I like, know. I that. know that. I exactly know happening. what that yeah, is. This is time slows and down. That's
1: What it is. There's actually yeah, time you know, slows down. This is actually you leave your a, body. a real thing. Yeah. And yeah. so it was really cool and I went up to her afterwards and we end up spending the next two years, once a week, meeting and having conversations about whatever it would be, but we would a lot of times practice ways to get into flow during races. I would say all of my best races have that moment where I'm so focused on my breathing, my form, my rhythm and The external things just sort of drift away. That's when I perform my best is whenever I am able to stay focused and get locked into that state. And I can remember specific races where that moment happens. It doesn't happen every time. Sometimes I'm not as focused. Those races I don't usually feel as good about. It's a mental training that has to occur. That's where I think the whole running where they say it's, 90% mental, 10% physical on race day because you have to be able to find that right frame of mind and lock in and then capitalize on the training that you've done that your body's physically prepared for.
0: Yeah, because the training is sort of the table stakes to get there where you can't get into that state. So what are some of the tricks you use to get into a flow state when you're racing?
1: So that's what we do when we practice and we're doing workouts and training. You're practicing mentally as well as physically. For me, I do a lot of workouts solo, and that gives me time to teach and remind my body how to lock into these states, to mentally prepare and focus, whether it's positive trigger words that I use or counting my breathing rhythm counting my strides, focusing on this mailbox, to that tree, to that sign, whatever it is that helps me stay very present with the here and now is really beneficial and helps me on race day uh, not get distracted. And then during the race, it's the same thing. All those tools that I've used during my training, I call upon. I will say when I ran the Twin Cities 10 miler last fall. It was the perfect race. I felt amazing the whole time. I was super focused. My rhythm was right on. My form was very fluid. When I called upon my body, it responded. When I made my move, I opened it up. No one else went with me. And I finished. I looked at my husband and I was running a race is not supposed to feel that good. It yeah. very yeah. rarely happens. You know, we all have those days every couple months or a few times a year where we have a run and we like, I could have gone forever. That was beautiful. This is why right. I do it. And we have to right. hold on to that moment because it's so far in <laughs> yeah. between and we have so many bad days. Yeah. Well, that race was a, a prime example of really being in flow the whole time. I mean, 10 miles flew by. Those 50 Two or fifty three oh whatever I ran, it just passed in the blink of an eye because I was so in the moment, and it was
0: and what happens in your brain and sort of it's a biochemistry thing as well as a physical thing is there's certain parts of your brain that get shut off, and one of the parts is the part that uh, keeps track of time, yeah, so that's why it feels like you go, what, what just happened, right? You missed chunks of time
1: and it's it's amazing, yeah, it's such yeah. a great and- feeling. <laughs>
0: Because you're still executing at this really high effort, but you're sort of detached and outside your body, so you're looking at yourself and going, "Huh, look at that." Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. So anyhow, this has been great, and I uh, I can't wait to see how you do in Boston.
1: Thank you. I'm excited so, about well. it. Six and and a half. Enjoy yourself. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Mr. McGilvery does a great job. He runs a great race. Mm -hmm. Uh, All those guys are professionals, so I think you'll be happy.
1: No, it's very exciting. I'm so glad it worked out. Being an Adidas athlete, it's especially exciting to go and run the Boston Marathon. They sent me all my Adidas official gear. That's pretty cool. Right,
0: because they're still the big sponsor.
1: Yeah, and I've been walking around in my Boston clothes feeling all official. It's been a lot of fun. And the preparation has been really special. It's been so unique and different than anything I've ever done before. I have moments of panic where it's new and I'm scared about it. And then I have moments where I embrace the challenge that's before me. It's going to be really exciting and it's been a journey. I'm looking forward to seeing how it goes, learning from this, because I know that Every race provides a good learning opportunity.
0: Well, you get the right frame of mind, which is enjoy it today because you never know what's going to happen tomorrow, right? Ah, So true. All right. I'm going to let you go.
1: All right. Thank you. Thank you
0: so much for your time. Of course. Hope you feel better. And uh, we'll see you in Boston.
1: All right. Cheers. See you there. Sometimes it takes a third party to
0: tell us what we already know. All right, my friends, this is a piece I actually did for a work blog, but I liked it so much I'm going to share it with you. Nine mistakes you don't have to make in your career. I saw a blog topic the other day entitled My Biggest Mistake, and the intent of this topic was obviously to teach, to explore a hard but useful lesson a broader audience could benefit from but I'm not really wired to think that way. So let me flip it around. Here are nine things that I got right, whether by design or accident, that others can learn from. Number one, always embrace new ideas and learning. Be curious. One of the biggest errors anyone can make is to think that learning stops when you leave school. You can benefit from learning something new at any age. From the start of my career, I always looked for ways to learn new things, and took advantage of any opportunities for structured learnings. I had the great fortune to start my career at Digital Equipment Corporation, where they financed employees to gain additional degrees. They also offered free APIC certifications classes for anyone who wanted to take the tests, and I got my certification, which qualified me for new roles in consulting, to the company's Asia-Pacific supply chain. And I was able to travel the world, meet new people, take in new experience. I would never have known had I not raised my hand when those courses were offered. Today, almost all the knowledge you could ask for is available to you. I am an avid reader and take advantage of travel time to consume two to three books a month. It's not just business books, but histories, biographies, and the classics Occasional liberal arts booster shots contribute to a well-rounded and thoughtful person. Feed your mind every day. Number two, travel and learn. Traveling around the world has taught me that people are people. There is no us versus them. Mark Twain said, Travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness, and many of our people need it sorely on these accounts broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. Don't make the mistake of vegetating in one little corner of the earth. Take advantage of opportunities to travel, learn new cultures, and shake off preconceived notions. Number three, cultivate the mind of a student. But what if learning doesn't translate into personal growth. One of the most unfortunate mistakes I see is the dogmatism of knowing too much. When you embrace opportunities for learning, when you travel to other places, don't make the mistake of thinking you know everything. Don't make the mistake of thinking you know anything. The Zen teachers would tell you to approach learning with the mind of a child. So look at each trip as an adventure. Whether boarding a flight for Copenhagen or Cincinnati, view it as a portal to new learning. When you start to think you know everything, you become dull to the world. Number four, work yourself out of a job. Wouldn't working to eliminate your own job be a mistake? Not necessarily. Once upon a time, I developed and delivered a training on a new product. Problem was, I got trapped in an endless cycle of doing the same training over and over again, so I Locked myself in a conference room for a week, and I recorded the entire training. Now I wasn't the bottleneck. Anyone who wanted to get the training could just get it. Don't make the mistake of assuming your job or your role is a fixed entity. Work to retain the value, but eliminate the job. Be the person who sets up systems and automates or eliminates manual processes. Set your proprietary knowledge free. Lead the charge. And you will not only add value to your organization, but it will position you as a leader. Number five, don't be afraid of hard work and don't give up too early. Expect that there will be hard work. Expect some failures and be okay with it. Embrace it. You will find that most worthy projects follow a U-shaped curve. When you first start the project, you will be excited and the work will be fun. At some point, it will start to get hard, and you will have to trust in the results without being able to see the finish line. You will have to fall down, sometimes multiple times. Get up and keep working. Eventually, the work will turn a corner, and you will see the finish line. The work will become fun and meaningful again as you approach your goal. When you find a project that is the right thing to work on, or that you have a passion about, be willing to put in lots of long hours of focus. To quote Mark Z. Danielewski, Passion has little to do with euphoria and everything to do with patience. It's not about feeling good. It's about endurance. Passion and patience come from the same Latin root, which means to suffer. That doesn't mean working for hardship's sake. Rather, be willing to apply and focus your energies on things you care about and things that will make a difference. Number six, never use the word overwhelmed. There are a few phrases that I have eliminated from my vocabulary. One of them is, I feel overwhelmed. I think when you say, I'm overwhelmed, you are telling the world that you are out of control and have given up. Whenever I hear the words start to form in my head, I see them as a trigger. A trigger to take a step back and look at the choices I have made and the choices I am making. Don't think like a victim. There is no such thing as being overwhelmed. There are only poor choices. Instead of declaring yourself overwhelmed, see it as an indicator that you need to look at your priorities and your decisions. Number seven. Another of the phrases I have cut from my vernacular is, I don't have time. This is usually a verbal crutch people lean on when in fact they are struggling to prioritize. I don't have time to exercise. I don't have time to read. I don't have time to work on that project. Whenever I find myself starting to say, I don't have time to, I change the statement to reflect the reality which is, this isn't a priority for me. That changes the whole context of the thought. Feeling that you lack time is living in the world of scarcity. That scarcity attitude will bubble over into the other parts of your life and career. Cultivate an attitude of abundance. You do have enough time to do the important things. Time is abundant. Try to talk in terms of what should be done, what can be done. When you find yourself thinking not enough time, Ask yourself if you know what the important things are. Number eight, understand that you are a leader. Whether you manage people or not, whether you want to be a manager or not, you are a leader. Everyone you interact with in your life and in your career is influenced by you. You will attract or repel people based on your actions and your attitude. Act like a leader. What is a leader? It is that person out in front of the herd finding the way. A leader has an attitude of abundance, doesn't complain, and looks for ways to help their co-workers and their company succeed. Don't make the mistake of thinking that you aren't a leader. Be a leader in action and in attitude. Number nine, it's not about you. Finally, it's a humbling but liberating concept that you don't know what's going on inside other people's heads. I guarantee they aren't thinking about your problems or your challenges. It's simply not about you. Whether you are working on a problem, selling a solution, creating a blog post, what you are doing or writing or saying must somehow impact your audience. That's a liberating idea. Now that you know, you don't have to worry so much. All those thoughts that may be rattling around inside your head regarding not being good enough or smart enough or strong enough, they're not important to anybody else. They each have their own cacophony of thoughts that they are dealing with. Organize your actions and attitude to truly address the needs and wants of others. That is where you will find true success. Remember that errors are the table stakes for growth, self-awareness, and maturity. We all make countless mistakes in our lives and careers, but if we learn as we grow, we have the ability to keep what proves true while casting aside things that are not. Great mistakes teach you humility and the importance of service. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Episode 4-335 has made its successful professional debut. The coming three to four weeks are just going to be a bit of a blur for me, and it's going to carry through May and into June. I've got a multi-day meeting in Chicago next week, then April 18th is the Boston Marathon, and I'm in the best shape. and have the most confidence in my training that I have had for about five years. You'd think that would make me less nervous, just the opposite when you haven't trained well, there's no stress because there's no expectation. I have trained well and now all I can do is screw it up. There will be some full-on sleepless nights and psychotic episodes over the next couple of weeks. April 24th is our 25th anniversary Groton Road Race and we've set up the virtual race. If you want to join from afar, just go to grotonroadrace.com. Hope to see you there. And then rolling into May, I've got Multiple conferences and meetings in New Orleans, Atlanta, Phoenix. I'll be on the road a lot and looking to run the canyon while I'm in Phoenix. Not sure what my next goal will be. I'm feeling a bit achy from all the road racing, so whatever it is, it won't be road racing, unless, of course, I blow my qualification try at Boston. Then I might have to lift that heavy bag of training to my shoulders once again, but I'm getting good at that. I got some pushback uh, on my dog joke from last time. Apparently the Goldens and Labs were insulted by my comments, and I apologize for that, but I truthfully never would have thought they had the mental capacity to be insulted. So I'll try to be more sensitive. Buddy woke up limping around the house today. He has something wrong with a front paw, and I'm going to take him to the vet. I want them to look at that other fatty lump on his back hip and maybe get that taken out over the summer because it seems to be really getting in the way of his running we're a pair of old guys limping around the house complaining about aches and pains i don't have any muscle pulls or tendonitis problems uh this cycle i'm healthy coach gives me enough rest and i've been attentive to my yoga and my core stretching i do have some goof pain what's goof pain well i caught a toe in the dark on the trail one night. I was emerging from the trail into a parking lot, and the snow plows had pushed up an unexpected piece of curbing into my path. And I came down on my palm and tore a nice hole. And palms don't don't heal well. Then coach gave me a recovery spin, a bike workout. Now, it's the first time I've been on a bike in six months at least. It was one of those nice days, so I took Fujisan off the fluid trainer, pumped up the tires, greased all the moving bits, and headed out for the rail trail. In the process, I had to swap the skewer on the back wheel because the trainer requires a specific skewer. It's the rod thingy that goes through the axles and it has a quick-release lever on it. Well, I must not have clamped the back wheel on well enough. <laughs> there I was in traffic, balancing at a stop sign, and I stood up in the pedals to go And the back wheel came out of the frame and seized. And of course, I'm clipped in, so I do that embarrassing death roll into the bushes. I took a piece of gravel and tore a nice hole in my knee. (laughs) Fast forward a couple days, and I'm out running in Los Angeles. I decide to try to make it to the beach and turn my one-hour run into a two-hour run. Now, since it was only supposed to be a one-hour run, I didn't put any lube on. It's hot for me in LA, so I was sweating, and I wore all the skin off a part of my body that sticks out. Yeah, so there I was last week, in the best shape of my recent life, no running injuries, and I managed to manufacture a hole in my hand, a hole in my knee, and a super uncomfortable bit of personal chafing. So yeah, the universe is in balance. I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So
1: Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry.